You guys have a good Thanksgiving? That was good. How many of you guys saw a movie this Thanksgiving weekend? Some of you did, yeah. Did you watch a movie on uh, TV? Some of you did, yeah. Um, one of my favorite movies actually on TV during Thanksgiving is this one right here. Let's take a look at the slide. Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. It's this great movie. It's a classic John Candy and Steve Martin. Uh, for my wife, though, her favorite movie in the holidays is Pride and Prejudice. How many guys have seen Pride and Prejudice? Don't raise your hand. No. Don't put your hand down. How many, how many guys have been forced to watch Pride and Prejudice? Yeah. Anyways, my, my wife has probably seen that movie about 30 or more times. There's this one funny exchange between uh, two of the primary characters. I looked this up. I don't know this by memory. Uh, Charlotte and Elizabeth. Charlotte says this, Mr. Collins and I are engaged. Elizabeth says, engaged? Yes. To be married? Yes, Lizzie. What other kind of engaged is there? Oh, for heaven's sake, Lizzie, don't look at me like that. There is no earthly reason why I shouldn't be as happy with him as any other. But he's ridiculous. Oh, hush, Lizzie. Not all of us can afford to be romantic. It's a great line. Another movie that I, uh, I've seen during the holidays, this, this next one, is The Matrix. And uh, I think to some of us, that movie's very confusing. But uh, the plot is, is something like this. It's a computer hacker named Leo, who's played by Keanu Reeves. And he comes to understand that life is really a complex computer simulation called The Matrix, which hides the truth from humanity, allowing them to live convincing simulated lives in 1999, while machines use people as an ongoing energy source. And, and Keanu Reeves' character comes to understand this, and his whole world changes. Everything is turned upside down. His whole perception of reality is turned upside down. But as this character develops through the movies, there's one quote that's always stayed with, with me from these movies. He says this, There are some things in this world that never change, and there are some things that do. There are some things in this world that never change, and there are some things that do. And like Keanu Reeves' character in the movie, we live in a landscape, a world of change, unbelievable change. In 2006, there were 2.5 billion searches on Google. In 2011 alone, there's going to be an estimate of 1 to 2 billion uh, Google searches a day. Get this, the top 10 in-demand jobs that will be around in 2011 did not exist in 2004, which means we're preparing kids for jobs that do not exist, using technologies we haven't invented yet. And there was a day, there was actually a day, if you can imagine something like this, where people actually looked for steady, steady jobs. And like my grandpa Case, who worked one job his entire life, the Milwaukee Railroad. He worked there for 45 years, and then retired with a great pension. No more. The U.S. Department of Labor estimates that the average student will have 10 to 14 jobs, 10 to 14 jobs by the age of 38. By the time they're 38 years old. And shopping... Shopping has changed on Black Friday. I, when I, re, I remember when I was little, stores opened on Black Friday at the normal time, 8 o'clock, 9 o'clock in the morning. Then it changed to 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. And this year, as we all know, it changed to midnight or 10 p.m. on Thanksgiving night. And Janiel and I were driving back from her folks' house in Woodbury, and we're driving on 494, heading westbound, and we just saw all these lines of cars and people standing in line at Walmart and Best Buy. We have never seen anything like that before. Things are changing. Yet... There are some things in this world that never change. We're in a series of teachings called Do Something, and we're looking at ending extreme poverty. I'd like to frame this teaching this morning with that statement. There's some things in this world that never change. First, 
one of the things that never changes in our, in our lives is our purpose. You were created, I was created, to join God in his work in the world. The most often asked questions in Western civilization from Plato to today is this. Who am I? What's the point of my life? Well, it hasn't changed since the beginning. If you have a Bible, I'd like to invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. You'll see the Bibles in the pew if you want to grab one of those. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis is right after the table of contents. It's really easy to find. Chapter 2, verse 19. Who am I? What is the point of my life? Maybe you're asking that question this morning. Verse 19. And the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. This is a foundational text for humanity. This is a foundational passage for us in terms of really understanding what life is about. Life is about joining God in his work, collaborating, partnering with God in what he wants to do. And this, this idea, this theme carries out throughout the scriptures. If you want to turn ahead to Genesis chapter 12, to your right, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. This idea of partnering with God, joining God in what he wants to do in the world, we see this throughout the scriptures, and we see it in this man named Abram in chapter 12 of Genesis Verse 1, God says, he speaks to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The point of life, the point of humanity, we see this in Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 12, is this idea of of partnering, collaborating with God, joining him in his work in the world. And you and I are made for significance. You and I were made for that. There's this yearning, there's this this desire deep in our bones to join God in his work in the world. We're made for significance. It's inescapable. To be human means that you're joining God. And what's interesting is that the scriptures actually close in the book of Revelation, this idea in the the heavens, the new heavens, the new earth, this idea that we will uh, partner and collaborate with God in the future. It's beautiful. And joining God means this. Joining God in his work in the world involves helping the poor and needy. This this partnering with God, this this joining with God, this collaborating with God means that you and I come to care about the things that God cares about. It means that you desire the things that he desires. It means that you get involved in the things that he's involved with. And he put it this way, to to partner with God, it's kind of in a sense, tongue-in-cheek, you're kind of stuck with the things that matter to God because that's just who he is. When I was young, over the holidays, I used to have my uncle Lindell would come over. And we would have great times with my uncle Lindell, laughing, playing board games. Yeah, there, there was something about my un- uncle that, that we kind of kind of had to put up with. He told long, boring stories, especially I remember as a kid. There was torture at times. And he'd tell these long stories about family members, like great, great, great uncles or fifth cousins, people I've never knew or met. And whenever he told these long stories, I, I had no place to go. We only had like five stations on TV, and they had no cell phone. This is pre-Atari days. There's no place to go. I didn't have anything to do. I had to sit there at the table and listen. 
This is part of my uncle. This loves his family, loves us to tell stories about our family. And as I grew up and came to enjoy these long stories, I observed that my uncle treasures his family. This big Swedish Johnson family who settled in rural southwestern Minnesota. It's just a part of who my uncle is. And a, and a part of who God is, is that he identifies with the poor and needy. It's, it's just who he is. It's a part of who he is. And you and I maybe at times want to pull away from the kitchen table and, and maybe we kind of get bored with that and want to do something else. But you come to understand that's just who God is. Over and over and over, the story of the scriptures remind us that God identifies with the poor and the needy and the vulnerable. You can't escape it. A resolve to help the poor. It's something that's always on God's mind and heart. It's just who he is. The Old Testament is a story of God's relationship with his people, starting with Abram. The Israelites who came to know God came to, in a sense, hang out with him. And in hanging out with him, they came to realize that God loves the poor and needy. They matter to him. Now I'm just going to go through some passages here. You may, be, may want to write these down in your notes. You don't have to turn to them, but just here's a sample, just a little survey of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy chapter 24 in the Torah, verses 19 through 21. This is God speaking to his people, the Israelites. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow, so the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. When you, when you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the alien, the fatherless, and the widow. The poor matter to God. The poor and needy matter to God. He cares about them. He's concerned about them. The psalmist says in Psalm 72, for he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. And it's an expectation of God that his people, the Israelites, would be the ones who actually would help those who are in need. That when there is no one to help them, the poor, the Israelites would step in. It was an expectation. And apparently some of God's people, and they kind of like us at times, if we're honest, get kind of bored with this insistence on the poor and the needy. They get kind of tired sitting at the kitchen table listening to his talk. It's almost like as we read in the scriptures and the stories, they get kind of tired and, and, and after a while they say, enough already. In this passage from the prophet Ezekiel, God equates the, their lack of attention to the poor as sin. Chapter 16, verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. That's a convicting verse. That's a compelling verse. And then, in terms of the spirituality of God's people in the Old Testament, even in there, God says, in your spirituality in terms of how you worship and how you engage in spiritual disciplines like fasting. I want you to have a heart for the poor and needy. In a passage that Pastor Chad actually has looked at before, Isaiah 58, this is God saying, is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, 
to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. It is not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away. One of the central claims, a primary voice in the Old Testament, from the Torah to the prophets, was the God, the God of these Israelites was different. This God was active and present in the world. And unlike the pagan gods in that time, where the pagan nations actually believed that, these, that their gods were distant and uninvolved in the world, but the God of the Old Testament is a God who is present and active, a God who is at work and who cares for those in need. And one of the most important ripples was that this, this people, that God's people, would be different, that they would be a peculiar people. And one of the ways they would do that is in terms of how they took care of the poor and needy. And it doesn't just stop with the Old Testament. The story of the Scriptures continues on in the New Testament. And one of the central claims, no surprise, that this God cared so much for this world that he came in flesh and blood. In a paraphrase of John chapter 1, verse 14, um, in a paraphrase, paraphrase called The Message by Eugene Peterson, it says, God became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. It's God incarnate, Jesus Christ. And just like in the Old Testament, we see Jesus caring for and being concerned for the poor and needy. He has a special heart for them. And that was unusual in that culture because the poor and needy were thought of as garbage, the refuse of society. And most people in that day turned them away, but Jesus welcomed them. And this is so unlike any man in ancient literature. One writer says, in regard to Jesus' compassion to the poor and to those in need, I challenge you to find anybody like him in ancient literature. And here's some New Testament passages too. You may want to write these down. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, Sell your possessions, give to the poor. It's this continuation of this sort of a drumbeat from the Old Testament. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will not be exhausted where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Give to the poor. Have a heart for them. Because your Father in heaven has a heart for them. They matter. Luke chapter 14, verse 13, Jesus says this, When you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. So in the first century, to be a part of the Jesus movement, that is, to be a Christian, meant having a concern and action for the poor and needy. It wasn't viewed as a sort of social gospel. It wasn't viewed, viewed as sort of an addendum. It wasn't viewed as, viewed as an optional sort of thing. To be part, to be a Christian, meant that you had a concern for the poor and needy. In fact, when Paul becomes a follower of Christ, he's sort of inquisitioned by a few of the disciples. And they want to check out his theology. And, and Paul records this in one of his writings uh, to the Galatian Christians, chapter 2, verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. We should remember the poor. The very thing I was eager to do. Of all the things they could have told him to remember, of all the things they could emphasize to him, these disciples, Peter, James, and John, they emphasize, remember the poor. Think about it. At the center of the birth and growth of Christianity was a concern for the poor and those in need. Some things in this world never change. Like a God, over centuries of human history and culture, invites his people 
to join him in his work in the world. And to be a part of that work means to be on the front lines to care for the poor. Some things never change, but some things do. One, one thing that I believe is changing and will change is extreme poverty. And when I say extreme poverty, as Pastor Chad has talked about, we're talking about the 1.4 billion people in the world that live on $1.25 a day or less. And perhaps you've never seen extreme poverty. We see it in Haiti, in Asia, in Africa, among other places. And when Chad mentioned the announcements, I just want to challenge you to take a step to believe it can be ended in our generation. You've got to allow those words to absorb into your mind and your heart. It can be ended in our generation. Do you want to be a part of ending it? Do you want to be on the front lines and where Christians and the church has always been involved in in terms of caring for those who fall through the cracks of society? Do you want to be one of those people on the front lines being involved in helping end extreme poverty? Can you imagine living in England in the, in the late 1780s when William Wilberforce led the charge to end slavery in all of Great Britain? Despite the economic challenges, the slave trade was abolished there in 1807. Then France, Spain, Austria, and Russia followed in 1815. And can you imagine for a moment uh, being a part of something like that during that generation? Can you imagine living in the South in the civil rights movement in the 50s and 60s, and maybe some of you were? Despite the enormous challenges, blacks in Alabama, Mississippi, and elsewhere rose up to turn the tide, championed by Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech, I Have a Dream. Can you imagine being involved in something like that? To actually be involved, to be a partner, a participant in something like that. And can you imagine living in South Africa just 25 years ago as Nelson Mandela led with great moral courage and political brilliance to overturn apartheid in South Africa? Can you imagine to have been a part of something like that? Each of these, slavery, apartheid, civil rights, were the great moral issues of, the, of that day. And I believe that extreme poverty is one of ours today. During those times of, of slavery and civil rights and apartheid, no one thought things would change. But gradually it did. Gradually it did. Year by year, they just chipped away. In a groundbreaking and influential book called The End of Poverty, Harvard and Columbia professor Jeffrey Sachs states simply, the time to end extreme poverty is now. And he states that it can be done by 2025. By 2025. He outlines nine steps in doing so. And he uh, wrote the book in 2005, and he set up uh, some different goals that need to be met by a, certain, uh, by a certain time. And we're right on track in accomplishing it. And there has been an exciting progress in the pursuit of ending extreme poverty in the world. Great progress. And you may remember when we looked at the clip from, from Live 58, it talked about some of the progress. And I just want to, again, reiterate, uh, highlight some of the progress that's taken place in the world in ending extreme poverty. In the 1990s, the number of children dying from preventable, preventable causes dropped from 40,000 to 33,000 per day. In 2008, 
that number decreased to 24,000. Today, it's 21,000. In one generation, we've cut the number of children dying from preventable diseases almost in half. Sometimes when you read information like this, you just gotta kinda pause and take that in. We've cut it in half. Amazing progress. 22 countries have cut their malaria rate in half in only six years. In six years. That's great progress. God is at work in the world. In 1981, 52% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. By 2005, that number was cut in half down to 26%, all in one generation. Cut down to 26%. I think this next slide kind of gives just a visual of what's happening. Percentage of people in extreme poverty since 81. Look at that change. Some things in this world never change, but some things do, and some things need to change. Some things need to change. God is at work in the world, working through millions of Christians in this world and other people to end extreme poverty. Will you be a part of it? And sometimes you, you may see a picture like that and you may say, you know what, 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 what does my little do-something card do? What is, what is the, the small um, difference that, that I put down on this card? Does it really make a difference? As you give up something good for something great, does it really make a difference? And I just want to encourage you as you think about your individual contribution or maybe your family's contribution, is that it makes a big difference. And I want you to consider the words from Robert Kennedy. It's just an amazing speech. I think he gave it in South Africa in in the late 60s. He said this, Let no one be discouraged by the belief there is nothing one man or one woman can do against the enormous array of the world's ills, against misery and ignorance, injustice and violence. Few will have the greatness to bend history but each of us can work to change a small portion of the events. And then the total of all these acts will be written the history of this generation. It is from the numberless diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped as we partner with God. As we look around to our resources, as we look at the things that we can offer in joining God in his work, each time a person stands up for an ideal, or acts to improve the lot of others, or strikes out against injustice. He sends forth a tiny ripple of hope. In crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring, those ripples build a current that can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance. That's what we're doing. These are tiny ripples of hope. It's where you take this card and you write down, I want to join God in his work in the world. That I realize from the very beginning, the point of my life is to partner with him, is to collaborate with him. That hasn't changed. And by having faith in Jesus Christ, that restores me into being able to do that. It's where I join God in what he wants to do in the world. And a part of what God wants to do is to care for the poor and needy and the ending of extreme poverty. 
is where you look around your resources and you write them down and you say, you know what, this is my individual contribution, but this is a ripple of hope. This is a ripple of hope that I, I pray and I believe that will grow and build for us as a church into a mighty current in other churches, thousands of churches across this world who are doing the same thing. Saying that we want to join God and then we take our tiny ripples of hope and we combine them together and it's a mighty current and making a difference. You know, the most significant things that have been a part of my life for me and Janelle and our kids it was uh, the church I was at before I came to Maple Grove Covenant Church is that we par- partnered with an organization that was really centered on um, developing relationships with uh, churches in America, with uh, villages in Africa that were suffering from extreme poverty. And uh, for me and Jeanne and the kids is where we just kind of looked at our resources and said, hey, we want to give uh, some things towards that. We're going to give up certain things and, and we're going to take the money aside and give that to uh, really be a part of helping this village. Here's some pictures here I want to show you. And one of the things that, that uh, we did with this church is where we took our, our, our money and helped uh, build a well. And if you can see that, the, the picture's kind of uh, tilted there. I think I had one of the kids actually take this picture. Uh, and these are the orphans in that village. And before this, they didn't have clean water. In fact, they had a, they had a mud hole uh, where they would scoop some of the water from. And you wouldn't let your dog drink that kind of water. But that's all they had. And one of the things that we did to... Uh, took a step was to have this well built to bring clean water in. And the smiles and the giggles and the laughter of these children, just having fresh water, was very, very significant. And that was a result of just a number of folks just saying, hey, um, I'm going to give my small portion where I'm going to be a tiny ripple of hope uh, in providing clean water to uh, this village. And we're not exactly sure, as Chad said, we're not exactly sure um, what we're doing. We're we're researching, looking at different options, different possibilities. But it's but a long-term relationship. But what will be your contribution towards that? To say, you know what, I want to send forth a tiny ripple of hope from my family, from my house. Let's go to the next picture. And one of the things that we did in addition to the well... um, was to provide mosquito nets and mattresses to the orphans and, and a number of the families that are in need there because one of the biggest causes of malaria, how people contract it, is actually through mosquitoes. And we provided mosquito nets as a part of that. And there, there's me just standing in line and it's handing out uh, mattresses and mosquito nets to a number of the kids. And what was really cool about this village is that the orphans and the widows went first. And we, only, we had a limited supply, but they had them go first to receive uh, those things. And it was an unbelievable night handing that out. I still remember being there and shaking each, each person's hand and, and just sending forth a tiny ripple of hope. Let's go to the next picture. And one of the things that we did too, where is... Part of our giving was to provide uh, these Singer sewing machines. Does anybody remember those sewing machines? Yeah, the, the classics, the ones that really, you know, stood the test of time. 
And we actually put those in our, in our, in our luggage, and we took as much luggage as, as we could on that trip, and we had these sewing machines, which are very heavy, by the way, um, and brought that over to the village. And that was all about enabling the women in the village uh, to use their creativity, uh, to give them dignity in making something and taking that clothing and be able to sell it and make a living from that. And you can just see their smiles, their excitement. And I think we had about seven or eight sewing machines that we brought on that first trip. So this morning, uh, your contribution, your response, as you think about the story of the scriptures from Genesis to Deuteronomy, the Psalms, to Ezekiel, to Isaiah, to Gospel of Matthew, to Luke, to Galatians, to Revelation. Understanding that your life is to join, is to collaborate, is to partner with God in his work in the world. And a big part of God's work is to care for the poor and needy. And for you this, this morning, to think about your response. If you want to pull out your program, that card, just take a look at it. If you haven't filled it out yet, I want to encourage you this morning. This is our last teaching with uh, Do Something. And uh, I'm going to pray in a moment, and after I pray, we'll receive this morning's offering. And I would encourage you, if you feel bold enough, just come up, up front here, take your card, and just uh, put it right in this gas can. I'll put it up here like we did last week. You can just drop your card in there and say, you know what? For me and my family, we want to send forth a tiny ripple of hope with the belief that as a community, these tiny ripples of hope, as we join God in his redemptive work in the world and caring for the poor and needy and ending extreme poverty, is our belief that these tiny ripples of hope as a church community will grow and build into a mighty current. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you so much this morning for your word. And it's clear that the poor matter to you. In different parts of society, in, in, in different organizations of society, in different sectors of society that overlook the poor, it was your expectation and your invitation to your people to, to care for them, to take up that mantle and to respond. Because every person is made in your image. So God, as a community, uh, we just, we had our resources and, and say, what would you have us do? Maybe for some of us this morning, that this is the first time we've heard about do something. And maybe for us, it's to consider what we can give up. In the example of Wayne giving up driving a car and using that money to give towards ending extreme poverty. God, we believe that extreme poverty will end. And we're thankful. And we, as we look at these changes in history over the last 20 years and the great progress, uh, we see your hand. We see your work and what you're doing. 
And God, we praise you and we worship you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said? Amen.